today on Ag News Daily. In the dairy industry, let's say that they go to um, fairs or exhibitions to be shown and shown off their genetics as part of their um, program at their farm or part of some of the advertising that a farm may do. I want to have a spot for that producer to record. Good afternoon and happy Tuesday from the Ag News Daily podcast. It is Tech Tuesday here at Ag News Daily, which I'm pretty excited about. We are talking Dairy Trace today, but we'll get into that here in a moment. But before that, Delaney, I want to know how your day's going. Hmm, My day has been extremely busy. And to be honest, this is the first time I'm getting to like sit down and take a breather. So thanks to the podcast for that. I don't know if it's too much of a breather. I feel like sometimes I get a little anxious, even though we pre-record, I never want to mess up or anything. So this is like the uh, busiest part of my day, I guess. It's a nice relaxation part of my day. Well, I guess you like talking news then. So why don't we go ahead and just kick things off? What are you looking at today? Absolutely. I'm glad you are pushing us right along here, Ashton. Uh, Yesterday, we had the USDA's first crop progress report. No surprise, there wasn't a whole lot to report on. The only state really that we've seen going as far as corn planting goes is the state of Texas, Ashton. And we saw Texas sitting about 55% complete already for their 2021 corn crop. And cotton, we're at just about 10% complete. Other states are also chugging along as far as cotton goes. Sorghum, Texas is chugging right along. Rice, we've seen quite a few states pick up there. Uh, Really the only state that hasn't started with rice planting yet is Missouri and California. But otherwise, most states really haven't gotten into the swing of planting yet. But next week, I imagine we'll see some different numbers coming out as we do see planters hitting the grounds this week. You know, Delaney, I feel like this is such a cool time of year. It's like a a race, I guess, to see who can get the most planted. I always like hearing about, you know, the percentages and how complete each state is. But I mean, go Texas. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you guys usually start pretty early just because it's warmer down there. You got warmer soil temperatures. You can get in and out a little quicker than we can here in Iowa. But since we're talking about planting, I want to flip flop it here and take it down to South America. Brazil is now 80% harvested as of a recent report that came out by Ag Rural, or I shouldn't say 80%. They're about 78 to 80%. So just not quite to the final stretch yet, but they are getting pretty close. Ag Rural said that they're leaving their production forecast for the country unchanged at 133 million metric tons. So we should be still, even with all the wet or excuse me, the wet, uh, dry, and then wet weather that we saw down there in South America, still probably not going to see that impacted too much in final production numbers coming out of the country. So we'll continue to watch that, see how that impacts the market here moving forward. Well, Delaney, I have some non-crop news. In fact, this is a follow-up from my story yesterday about the state of Indiana. A couple of those ethanol groups opposing Senate Bill 303. And Growth Energy, who we've talked to before with CEO Emily Score, has come out and also said that they are urging Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb to veto that Senate bill following that letter. 
and CEO Emily Score, which I who I just mentioned, she sent a letter today also calling on the governor to act. Score says that the legislation seeks to limit E15 sales by mandating warning labels on E15 fuel dispensers. She says that they will confuse consumers by adding, quote, a needless label that conflicts with language already on federally required stickers. The legislation threatens new markets, key to revitalizing income for farmers, which we kind of already talked about that yesterday. So this really isn't anything new, but I just wanted to let people know that we're seeing more people specifically score kind of oppose this bill, but again, just going to have to keep an eye out on that. Absolutely. And Ashton, we've gotten really through the bulk of the Suez Canal news, I suppose you could say, but uh, we did see some traffic stopped briefly as we saw an oil tanker lose power. We saw that happen on just earlier today on Tuesday. Uh, The traffic was temporarily halted just two weeks after we saw that container ship you know, of course, was blocked in there, wedged in there for a while. This oil tanker had to be towed out by tugboats. Thankfully, it was a short, short, uh, what sort I'm looking for? Pull out, I guess, short dislodgement compared to the the uh, original Suez Canal ship that was wedged in there. Uh, and the Suez Canal Navigation Committee says that this waterway was really unaffected for the most part. Most of the ships were able to get in still in time. Just about six ships were held up, but uh, they're just not catching a break, it seems like. No, it sounds like we've got some bad juju going on in (laughs) international waters. That's a good way to put it, Ashton, some bad juju. Well, Delaney, I have another piece of Senate bill news, this time talking about Kansas wind energy. And I feel like wind energy is one of those niches of agriculture that isn't talked about too much. We have a ton of windmills out here in West Texas, but I never really talk to any wind farmers or anything like that. But Kansas Wind Energy representatives and advocates guaranteed a Senate panel Tuesday that a bill currently under consideration would end industry investment and development in the state if approved. Senate Bill 279 would establish state regulation of wind generation facilities, replacing county commission discretions on the establishment of these sites. State law would define turbine setbacks from businesses, homes, and parks, among other areas, and set caps on sound and light emitted from turbines. Proponents of this bill have urged legislators to give them leverage to block these projects, However, opponents backed a decision-making process and zoning laws that they said have worked well for years. Alan Anderson, who is vice chairman of the Polsonelli Energy Practice Group, was quoted as saying, we don't at this point have to guess what happens in the state of Kansas. We have 20 years of operating projects, 40 utility-scale projects in 30 counties that approach projects. What we're talking about here is an assault on the ability for someone to use their property to enter into commerce. Anderson joined county commissioners, wind energy advocates, and a former Senate president to push back against the bill in the second of two days of testimony before the Senate Utilities Committee. Opponents said concerns voiced by proponents of the bill were already being accounted for within the current county processes and praised the economic benefits of wind energy investment. 
In the state of Kansas, there's more than 3,000 turbines across the 40 developments and 30 counties that Anderson referenced, and nearly 50 people provided in-person or written testimony urging the Senate panel to reject this bill. And I, I just think it's quite interesting, especially because as this article goes on to say that this legislation is one of the most restrictive in the country. So it's it's certainly interesting. I don't know at this point the implications that this would mean on the wind energy, wind energy sector, um, but I'm going to keep my eye out on it and see what other people have to say if it does get passed um, and hopefully look out for some of those implications because I'm interested in knowing what this would mean for the ag industry and for mm-hmm. wind farmers in general. Yeah, and I think that a lot of farmers, at least here in Iowa, are kind of mixed on wind energy. Uh, I mean that in the case of there's a lot of farms around even the Des Moines area that have wind turbines, which I think at first, you know, a lot of farmers thought that was going to make them money or maybe be able to diversify their income. But now as we're, you know, 10, 15 years into having wind energy, maybe they're not quite as exciting to have in your field and have to farm around them as they once originally were. So definitely something we don't talk a whole lot about on the podcast, but probably should be at least somewhat more cognizant of what's going on there. But one other thing I am cognizant of, Ashton, is the CFAP2 reopens officially for producers to sign up after we've seen that program on freeze was put on freeze uh, for about three months as the Biden administration stepped in there. But according to the USDA, sign up begins again today and will be open for at least 60 days for this second round of CFAP payments. And the USDA also announced the availability of $2 million to quote unquote establish partnerships with organizations to provide outreach and technical assistance to socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers, but they said as a whole, they are working to make more financial assistance available to a broader set of producers, including those socially disadvantaged communities and uh, other partners to make that happen. So you could see awards anywhere from $20,000 to $99,999 for a duration of six months to a year here if you are awarded some additional aid but we will continue to see how that CFAP sign-up goes. Uh, but I believe if you signed up for the first round of CFAP payments, you do not need to re-sign up for this round. Well, Delaney, I'm glad that we are seeing that kind of roll out once again. It's good to see that program being kick-started back up under this new administration. I know that farmers don't always want too much help from the government, but hopefully those who are in need get what they need to get that assistance. But I just have one more story to share today concerning African swine fever. Taiwan has begun testing hog herds and putting in place movement controls near a spot where a dead pig infected with African swine fever washed ashore over the weekend. The government is working to ensure the island remains free of the disease So they are putting in place, like I said, these movement restrictions. They're testing hog herds. But in a statement, Council of Agriculture Minister Chen Ching-chung said a dead pig washed ashore in northern Taiwan on Sunday. And on Monday, it was confirmed to have the virus, which he said was a perfect match for the strain circulating in China, which I I wish I knew a little bit more about because I believe you said yesterday, Delaney, that they were concerned with about eight 
different strains? Yeah, eight to nine is what uh, Dr. Pyburn was saying. Yep. So I'm I'm just interested. I feel like it's just so messy, and I I wish we had a little bit more clarification on you know what each of these strains like the the symptoms of each one, how they're affecting differently. I think it would be interesting to learn a little bit more about that. However, I don't know if we actually have those kinds of answers at this moment, but either way, 11 pig farms with almost 3,000 head of animals within a 6.2 mile radius of where this dead pig was discovered have had their movements restricted, which also goes for workers in vehicles at the farms, not just pigs. So Taiwan is taking this pretty seriously. And again, they're also testing pigs um, to see if anyone has tested positive for African swine fever, but they're they're taking this pretty seriously. I think that they've had, um, you know, dead pigs wash ashore before because um, they are pretty close to China, but mm-hmm. they're taking all of the steps that they can to ensure that their herds aren't seeing anything like China is. Yeah, absolutely. And you really have to put some measures in place just because, especially with that many different types of the strain of the virus, it's going to be hard to put some sort of vaccine in place that'll kill all of the different strains. So you got to be diligent. That's for sure. Uh, Ashton, I tell you what, I don't have any other news other than talking markets. What do you say? Let's do it. I'm ready. All right. Well, if you kick things off here across the board in the grain markets, we had a little bit of a flip-flop today in the corn market. Yesterday, old crop corn was in the red. Today, new crop corn is in the red. But overall, pretty strong markets as you make your way across the board. May corn up a penny today to close at 5.54 and a quarter. The July up a penny and a three quarters to close at 5.41. The Deese new crop down five and a quarter cent to close at 4.83 and a quarter. Soybeans all across the board continued higher today as the May contract added six cents to close at 14.18 and three quarters. The November up two and a quarter cent to close at 12.71 and a quarter. And Chicago wheat lower today as the May contract shed two and a half cents to close at 6.15 and a half. The July down three quarters of a cent to close at 6.12 and three quarters. Hopping over to take a look at the livestock markets today. They were mostly higher as the April live cattle contract added $1.35 to close at $122.72.5. The June up 20 cents to close at $124.62.5. In feeder cattle today, the April contract up just two cents to close at $146.47.5. The May unchanged to close at $151.77.5. And in lean hogs today, a little bit of mixed trade here as well with the April contract shedding 30 cents to close at 102.10. The June up two and a half cents to close at 105.62 and a half. And wrapping things up with the class three dairy milk futures. The April contract 16 cents lower today to close at 17.44. The May up eight cents to close at 18.65. Without further ado, Ashton, let's turn it over to our conversation talking about dairy trace. Well, for today's Tech Tuesday conversation, we are talking to Melissa Hurst, who is a Dairy Trace Program Manager with Lactinet Canada. You heard that right, folks. She is calling in all the way from Canada, from Saskatchewan, I believe is what you said before we started recording. So, Melissa, thank you so much for coming on today. No problem. Thanks for having me. 
So Melissa, before we get started talking about the Dairy Trace program, I want to know a little bit more about you and some of the day-to-day tasks that you have to tackle as a program manager. Sure. So I guess a little bit about me. Um, Originally, before I took this position, which I just took the position with the launch of Dairy Trace, which was October 5th, 2020. But prior to that, I had worked at the Saskatchewan Ministry of Agriculture as their provincial livestock traceability specialist. So that really ultimately set up some groundwork for me here to be really focused in on the dairy industry at this time. But high level picture about traceability and livestock in Canada is that it's um, regulated federally and that's regulated through CFIA, which is the Canadian Food Inspection Agency. And so CFIA uh, has federal regulations, which are the health of animals regulations and traceability is specifically par 15 of those regulations. So in June 2020, Lactinet, along with the Dairy Farmers of Canada, um, announced that in the fall, so in October of 2020, they would be um, the official responsible administrator for dairy bovine in Canada. And that ultimately means that dairy cattle under the federal regs now have a spot to report traceability um, events. So that's what Dairy Trace really is. So with the launch of it, there's obviously some things that keep me quite busy, but also with, um, as I mentioned, like Dairy Farmers of Canada, they have a pro-action and pro-action is ultimately an on-farm, what would you call that? I guess it's a on-farm quality assurance program. So there's six modules to that of which one is traceability. So I am quite lucky to work very, very closely with the industry and have Dairy Trace as a spot for them to report traceability movement information into through their pro-action requirements. Melissa, I want to get back to the traceability thing here in a minute, but I think it's important to talk a little bit more about Canada's dairy system, just because a lot of our listeners are located in the U.S. and other countries around the world. But your dairy system is a little bit different than perhaps those compared to folks who raise dairy here in the United States. Talk to us a little bit more about the supply management system that Canada uses to run the dairy, govern the dairy industry. So yeah, that's. I'll keep it very simple um, because it is. It's not a complex system, but at the same time, it ultimately is a supply managed system, which there is quota, and that quota is on butter fat, which is specific to the milk. And so, with milk in Canada, um, you would never necessarily, besides if you were a processor, be able to trace the milk back to the farm, and that's probably for good reasons. But at the same time, the processors are able to trace back uh, where the milk came from. So traceability from my standpoint, I'm very much dealing with the live animal. And when I say the live animal, I want to know when that animal was born on a farm, um, any movements that that animal uh, incurred, let's say in its life. And so in the dairy industry, let's say that they go to um, fairs or exhibitions to be shown and shown off their genetics as part of their um, program at their farm or part of some of the advertising that a farm may do. I want to have a spot for that producer to record that that animal, let's say, left their farm 
um, went to the Royal Winter Fair in Toronto, and I would have that movement of that animal in Dairy Trace to the point that I would know um, all the other animals. Let's say when it was at that Royal Winter Fair in Toronto, that that animal could have commingled with or interacted with in case there was ever a disease outbreak or something associated to that fair or to that animal that others would need to be alerted to. So there's kind of two traceabilities uh, taking place. And from my standpoint, I'm very much looking at the live animal, not necessarily the milk product. Essentially, you guys are watching, tracing, keeping track of, or providing a system, I should say, to manage, to watch, to track the dairy industry, the, the cattle themselves, as opposed to the milk and the supply chain. Is that, am I right. saying so that? So at okay. this time, it's very... Yeah. So at this time, it is very much um, the live or sorry, yeah, the live animal itself. And it's the like Dairy Trace is really an assurance type program for like catastrophic events such as a disease outbreak, let's say BSC, heaven forbid, or TB. Um, you would be able to use this system to do or to trace the animal's movements. And so then that's why it's really governed by the federal government here in Canada, because you need everyone all across Canada from British Columbia to Prince Edward Island to be partaking and reporting their movements. So, Melissa, Dairy Trace was just launched back in October, and that seems like so long ago now. I mean, we're approaching April 2021 really quickly but, um, you know, when in terms of business, you guys really haven't been um, around for too terribly long. But with that being said, what have you been hearing back from the industry about the program? Right. So with traceability and traceability in general in Canada, it's been like a long road. So the federal government um, has many times or and is so very active in proposed changes to the federal regs. So those original regulations that I stated earlier, the health of animals regulations, there's proposed changes coming to that. And those, some of those proposed changes would be as simple as um, when you activate an RFID tag, um, you would need to state the premise identification number. So ultimately the location where that tag was activated to the animal. So with that, in Dairy Trace, it's already set up that you can go in, see all the RFID tags, uh, which are traceability tags, that have been assigned to you as a producer, and you can go in and activate the birth reporting, which by default in the dairy industry is a requirement for proaction traceability. So with that, this is seen as, ultimately, I'll put it in a shining light for sure, because you now have a spot to go in and the producer can record and report the activation of the tag. Before that, it would have been paper documentations that they would be using and or other software that wasn't necessarily the dairy industries to own um, that they would be um, using to generate reports that are required for pro-action requirements. So Melissa, overall, it's good. Yes. <laughs> when yeah. you look at the the dairy industry as a whole, we're talking globally here. Do you see traceability like or products like what Dairy Trace is doing? Um, do, you, do you see that 
being needed in other countries that have large dairy industries? Or do you think the trend is moving towards having traceability and implementing systems like these? I think it's quite I think at the end of the day, systems like these do work. Um, as I had stated before, I've been working in traceability for a while before specifically focusing on the dairy industry. And it's a lot, to say the least, to get all the players at the table and also to get all the players, let's say, at the table to agree to what the requirements would be. And so when I say something like all the players, if I just do a very basic example, it would be the farmer who would need to, who owns the animal, would have to activate the tag. So by that, they would enter in a birth date of that animal and activate the tag. Then they would have to report, let's say, a move out event if it was federally required. And so they would have to report that to a program such as Dairy Trace. And that move out event um, would then be, let's say, a move in event at, um, we'll just make this animal's life quick, at like a slaughterhouse and or an abattoir. So then that slaughterhouse would have to report the move in event of that animal based off the RFID tag, and ultimately that that tag had been retired, so the end of the life. And then that slaughterhouse would then have to report back to Dairy Trace and or the federal government, whichever one is seen as appropriate, that the tag has been retired. And so then in my traceability system, I know this was the life of the animal, it lived this long, and ultimately it's dead at this end date. That's putting it pretty simple. But when you get all other species across Canada, so I know they were also working with, let's say, bison, beef cattle, sheep, goats, and pigs. And of course, the other one was uh, cervids, so like deer and elk type deal. So it's getting all those players all on the same page, all agreeing to these are the requirements of traceability federally. And as you can imagine, that becomes quite complex. And then each province in Canada may have its own um, requirements in place. So if I just take Saskatchewan, for example, they have what's called a manifest. So in that manifest, uh, before the animals leave your premise or your farm, you need to have that filled out to be transporting the animals on a highway. So that's already a document that's in place, but how can they connect that document to um, like a national system? Or how can a dairy farmer use a manifest and report that information on the manifest into Dairy Trace? So, of course, Dairy Trace um, is good because it is very specific to just the certain um, species, like dairy bovine, which I think is the win in this case, as traceability should be very, very industry-driven, not necessarily mandated by government. So, Melissa, if our listeners, you know, here in the U.S., in Canada, or anywhere else globally want to find out some more information about Dairy Trace, where can they go to find out some more information? For sure. So, simply, you could go to dairytrace.ca, and on the website, dairytrace.ca, um, there's information that is posted there. There's some resources. There's some videos Um all sorts of good stuff. And of course, um, if they want to reach out to me or have questions about it, I'd be happy to do that as well. And so then my email is just mhurst at dairytrace.ca. 
All righty. Well, Melissa, thank you again so much for coming on today. We really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks again there to Melissa from Dairy Trace for coming on and talking to us. I always feel super cool when we do like international interviews, Delaney. I don't know about you because you've been doing this a little bit longer than I have, but I always, I always feel pretty cool. Yeah, I agree, Ashton. It's fun to talk to people um, in other parts of the country just or other parts of the world, I should say, just uh, because agriculture is different everywhere you go. So it certainly is fun to talk to people across the pond. Certainly is Delaney. Although I don't know if Canada's technically across the pond. I'll point that out there, but uh, they're a little bit up north. But either way, Delaney, we're always talking to pretty cool people in the ag industry, whether that's here in the U.S. or across the pond. So folks, be sure to tune in at agnewsdaily.com and follow along with us as we share some cool stories on social media as well at Ag News Daily. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.